Thank you for downloading the IA podcast. You can listen to all our episodes on Podbean, Spotify, Apple, and YouTube. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to today's episode. Today we're going to discuss this report here, First Do No Harm, by the Independent Medicines and Medical Devices Safety Review. And I'm joined today by two uh, of the people who have been involved with this report, uh, namely by Dr. Sonia McLeod, who is the lead researcher, and by Simon Whale, who is a panel member and the communications lead. Uh, welcome to you both and thank you for joining. Um, medical safety is one of those issues where um, most of us normally take it for granted. We just think there are procedures in place, don't really think about it until, uh, well, until we have to. And uh, I have to say, before I read this report, I also used to think this is a relatively straightforward issue. Surely there are safety procedures in place and uh, that's all there is to know. And if uh, if something happens later, then um, you can sue the company or whatever. But what I've learned from this is that apparently it isn't so simple. So there will be safety issues in any healthcare system, sometimes a drug device uh, procedure that was presumed safe at the time it was launched, later turns out not to be so safe. But the question, of course, is how does a healthcare system respond once uh, that information becomes available? Does it try to inquire the issue? Is it open about it? Does it try to get to the, the root of the matter? Or does it try to somehow cover up the issue and stifle debates? And I think that is the issue that uh, we're going to discuss today. Can I ask you both first, um, what was the motivation for writing this in the first place? How did this report come about? Sonia, starting with you. Um, the report came about actually after very, very lengthy campaigning. Um, I think it shouldn't be forgotten that some of the campaign groups were campaigning for decades to get these issues into the public forum and really addressed. Um, and the actual report came about because the Secretary of State commissioned us to look into it. Um, that did follow this years and years and years of actually trying to get the system to pay attention to the issues that they were concerned about. Okay, so you had uh, patients who were campaigning, well, who were originally affected by it, tried to do something about it through more localized channels, but uh, found out that they were getting nowhere. Is that right? I think yeah. both. <laughs> Sorry, Simon. You're absolutely right, Christian. That 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 characterizes one of the key themes in, in the review and in the report that, that we produced that for many years, as Sonia has said, patients were saying, we've suffered harm, we need help, we need the system to learn the lessons. Uh, and they were, I'm afraid, being ignored for years and in some cases for decades. So it was the um, decision of the Prime Minister of the day to, to order the review and the Secretary of State for Health commissioned the review and that's what we did. It took us two and a half years to produce it um, because there was a huge amount to, to listen to, there was a huge amount to understand and we owed it to those patients to get it right and uh, that's what we did. Okay, let's maybe go through these various um, procedures one by one. You're concentrating on three areas here. Hormone pregnancy tests, that was uh, something that was used in the 50s and 60s before uh, modern pregnancy tests became widely available. Uh, sodium valproate use for, for 
pregnancy, has other uses as well, but you, you looked at that as aspect, and pelvic mesh. Um, can I first of all ask, how did you decide on those topics, on those, uh, those particular procedures? Um, they were laid out in the Secretary of State's um, instruction to us. So those were the three areas that we sort of had instructions to cover. And that's why our terms of reference stuck to those three areas. I think what we did find as we went through the review is there are other areas and other sort of devices and pharmaceuticals that have caused concerns. But within our terms of reference, we stuck to these three because they were the three that we were instructed to look at. Okay, let's maybe go through those three, uh, starting with the uh, the hormone pregnancy tests um, licensed for use in uh, the 50s, 60s. But uh, although not all of the, some of the manufacturers said um, that, that this is maybe not the right use, but doctors were still prescribing them or recommending them. And uh, what, was, what was the problem there? Um, the first thing that I would say is that they weren't licensed for use because at the time they were introduced, there wasn't a licensing system. This goes back into the 1950s. And so this, the regulatory structure itself just wasn't the same as we, we think about it now. And it, it simply wasn't there at that point in time. The issue was concerns were raised and they were raised sort of from 1967 onwards that these tests were causing abnormalities in children and that they were affecting them. But as you say, that didn't lead to them being withdrawn um, for some time afterwards. And even once there was an official sort of instruction not to use them as hormone pregnancy tests, we know that they still carried on being used for many years afterwards. Right. Uh, do you have any explanation or a suspicion why that would be? Um, because I, I would imagine for from a doctor's perspective, wouldn't you try to cover your backs if something is, uh, even if there's only a slight suspicion um, that something might cause harm, wouldn't you stay away from it? Um, you would absolutely hope that would be the case, yes. Uh, and I would hope that now that would absolutely be the case. We are going back, and one of the difficulties with doing a review like this is you, you have to contextualize things within the social environment in which they took place. And we are going back to a different time where doctors were much more, it was much more of the doctor knows best and you don't question school of thought. But what we found when we looked through is there were contemporary references that were very, very clear from the 1960s, which very clearly said, if there is a suspicion of a doubt that these drugs are causing it, and there was no overriding need for them, there were other methods to test for pregnancy, they shouldn't have continued to be used. So that is more the issue, that there was a safer or at least uh, a foolproof uh, alternative and uh, mm -hmm. therefore no need to use this invasive, potentially risky method. Exactly. When, 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 when the concerns were raised in the, in the mid to late 1960s and an alternative non-invasive product was available, it would have been sensible, even when, as Sonia says, you, you put yourself into the minds of people in that time, as opposed to today, surely it would have been right to say, it's not worth taking the risk. Mm -hmm. Let's let's in, ensure that 
doctors do not give these products to women and that women are, are given a, a test that doesn't raise such concerns about risk. Okay, so just to be clear here, are we talking about primarily a cultural issue, uh, doctors being paternalistic, having the attitude that I know best, I'm the professional here, and you do as you're told, or is this a matter of institutions, regulations, something that can be addressed through um, institutional reform, legislation? It's both, Christian. Um, there, there was definitely a paternalistic doctor knows best attitude, but in addition, the regulatory system of the day was nothing, nothing like it is today. It, it was, it had far less statutory power. Um, it was more reliant on people volunt voluntarily complying with suggestions and recommendations rather than being required to. And communication was not so clear, not so good, not so fast. Uh, so, and the, the awareness amongst women was, was almost at zero awareness of the risks. No one told them. So for all those reasons, uh, it, it carried on for years longer than it should have been mm -hmm. in use. Yeah. As I mentioned before we started recording, uh, to me, this is a new topic. I've, I've written about health systems, but never about that particular uh, aspect. So you'll excuse me. Some of my questions will be quite beginner level. But uh, the beginner level question here would be, well, if there is some uh, safety concern or if I have reason to believe that I've been harmed by something that I've been prescribed, uh, wouldn't the normal route be to sue the company or, or sue the doctor or sue someone? Why is that not uh, the option that was taken or, or, or indeed the option that you would normally recommend? Absolutely, that would be the normal option. But I think the one thing we found when we went through this review is litigation simply has not worked well for any of the groups, not for hormone pregnancy tests, not for the Valparate cohort, nor for pelvic mesh particularly. And litigation isn't easy. There are quite substantial hurdles to overcome. And it's not just saying, you know, I have this harm that's been done to me. You have to be able to really demonstrate that harm. And that in itself is quite a large hurdle to overcome. So I think the one thing we take away from this, there have been attempts at litigation um, for all three, and so far they haven't proved very successful. So yes, that would normally be the route, but actually in practice, it hasn't worked for these patients. And that's why when we looked at it, we said, well, okay, there's got to be a better alternative than this. And I think that comes from a place of saying, look, no system is ever going to be perfect. There will be harm with the best will in the world. What you don't want to do is compound that by putting someone through a really unpleasant adversarial process that results in not a lot for them. What you want is to say, okay, there's harm. We need to provide care. We need to provide compensation. And rather than having an adversarial oppositional system to do that we thought it would be better to have an administrative system that works on the basis of avoidability rather than having to demonstrate fault which is where a lot of our groups have struggled okay yeah that is one of the themes in this report you talk about redress rather than 
litigation uh, mm -hmm. about a no-fault process. So you wouldn't want uh, an, an ambulance-chasing system or a litigation culture like, uh, say, the system in the United States, which is famous for that, that uh, that is a substantial proportion of the, the medical cost that you get um, high uh, premiums for malpractice insurance as a result of that and defensive medicine uh, doctors prescribing things that maybe the patient doesn't really need but which the doctor thinks I have to do just to cover my back just to make sure I've got the right boxes ticked. Uh, that is that is one of your themes. You don't want that kind of system here. No, what we want is a much more actually a much more compassionate system, a much more humane system and a much more caring system that recognises when people have been harmed, there is a duty to provide and to provide redress. Yeah, absolutely. But I think our other recommendations were about providing care as well. So specialist centres. So it has to be a more holistic approach in a way. Mm -hmm. Uh, and on that note, uh, on these specialist centres, um, isn't there isn't there a risk that uh, if if you have too many sub specialist uh, centres that you fragment healthcare delivery, um, isn't the main challenge or been over the decades uh, to try to integrate various professions, try to get them to cooperate across professional boundaries. Uh, if you say we have a we'll have a centre for this, we'll have a centre for that, isn't there a danger of fragmentation there? Uh, I, I don't think there needs to be fragmentation, Christian. I think what we proposed in relation to specialist centres was the bringing together of various different uh, disciplines, not just health-related and clinical disciplines, but also disciplines involving education and social care support into one place so that those affected by medicines in pregnancy, people who've suffered harm as a result, avoidable harm as a result of medicines in pregnancy, could go to one place to get the kind of advice and interventions and support that they need across all those different elements, whether it's healthcare, social care, or education for children who've been harmed. And at the moment, the system absolutely is fragmented. It is literally geographically fragmented. People have to travel a long way uh, from where they live. They have to travel to different destinations for different types of services. And when you've suffered physically and mentally and emotionally, um, that, that adds difficulty and challenge upon difficulty and challenge. It is really difficult. So the concept that we developed was that you seek to put all these services into one place mm -hmm. so that there is a more joined up, less fragmented um, uh, support system for people who suffered so much. Okay, a one-stop shop. Um, going back to the report itself, uh, we've briefly talked about the hormone pregnancy test. The second issue that you cover is sodium valproate use in pregnancy. So sodium valproate, that is uh, something that you use to, uh, to treat epilepsy. Uh, or later uh, psychological conditions, bipolar disorder. What was the problem with that? Can you just walk us through that chapter? Okay. One of, I think, the shocking things about Valproate is it was certainly very heavily suspected from the animal studies when it was introduced that it would be a teratogen, that it would potentially cause harm to unborn children who are exposed to it during pregnancy. So from the absolute outset, that risk has been there. It has been known and the system didn't follow up. 
it didn't monitor, it didn't check in the way that you would have hoped that it would have done. And it didn't warn women in the way that you would expect. So I think it has always been known that it would cause issues and it can cause very severe issues. I mean, the range of Valparate spectrum disorder ranges from sort of relatively mild through to very, very severe disability. Um, so it isn't as though this was just something that, that didn't matter very much. It absolutely mattered. Okay, and if I understand your report correctly, in the case of, uh, of sodium valproate, the evidence base was also stronger than in the case of hormone pregnancy tests, where mm -hmm. you can't definitively prove that there is a link either way, but there is a stronger evidence base in this case, is that right? Mm -hmm. The evidence base for physical malformations was very strong from fairly shortly after it was introduced. I mean, as I said, there were always suspicions because of the animal studies that it would do this. These began to be confirmed in case reports within a relatively short space of time. The neurodevelopmental side effects of in utero valproate exposure took longer to come to light. And that's not surprising in a way if you think about it because you can't pick up these neurodevelopmental effects necessarily until children are a bit older because it's much harder to work out, but they certainly should never have taken the length of time to come to light and be accepted that they did. And that is in part because the monitoring just wasn't there. People weren't looking, if you like, and it's only really down to sort of a few very dedicated clinicians bringing this to the fore that it really became accepted. Okay, so there was no database that follows uh, these patients over a longer period so that you can get longitudinal data so that you could see, oh wait, there's something wrong here, there is some uh, something abnormal going on. That was not not the case, is that right? There are... No, that, that... Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Simon, speaking of you. There are databases about anti-epileptics um, in pregnancy, but they pick up the physical malformations. So they stop monitoring at a few months old. There isn't the length of longitudinal study for the neurodevelopmental aspects. Right. Um, let's have, or uh, while, while we're while we're in that uh, on that chapter, uh, you quote some of the the doctors uh, saying things like, "Well, they they didn't want to unnecessarily unnecessarily scare patients." So that was sort of the attitude. Uh, now, of course, I've I've also written about how healthcare should be patient centered. Um, uh, and all the rest of it, but one could play devil's advocate here, that uh, if you read any of the uh, the counter-indications in, in, in medicines uh, today, you would almost never take anything, because it's, it's quite often a long and scary list, and uh, quite a lot of these are things that uh, they may be legally obliged to put in. It's uh, something that some pers one person has reported, maybe, and it's not clinically proven. Uh, but if you were uh, to take all of those warnings and warning labels at face value, you would never take anything other than maybe paracetamol or maybe not, not, not even that. So um, can you see the case there as well for, for the, uh, well, devil's advocate or rather doctor's uh, advocate uh, position here? I think we can understand what, what the point you're making, Christian. I think, I think the, the difference here is that sodium valparate when taken by a woman who 
is pregnant or becomes pregnant whilst taking it has a one in two chance of causing uh, harm to the unborn child, a one in two chance. That's the combined risk factor when you take into account neurodevelopmental and physical problems. Um, it's one of, if not the most, teratogenic drug that's currently available um, for patients to take. It's on a, it's, it's a different order of magnitude right. from most other medications. This is not, I mean, it's the, the key point that, that, that we focused on was that women had the right to know and women had the right to choose. A patient-centric system needs to give patients clarity, transparency, and objective facts so that they can make up their own mind in their own best interest with the advice of doctors, of course. And there is a course of risk if you suddenly stop taking uh, a medication for your epilepsy, there is a risk that your epilepsy becomes uncontrolled and that can cause serious harm too. So these decisions need to be taken very carefully. Moving from one anti-epileptic drug to another is not a simple thing to do either. But for the woman just simply never to be told that there's a one in two chance of harm, is surely unacceptable. And a one in two risk, uh, it's, it's hard to imagine that somebody would knowingly take a risk uh, in, in that order of magnitude. Because with, with most of those things, we're talking about one in 200 or so. Mm -hmm. um, Indeed. Yeah, there is, of course, in any healthcare system, there would be, there is a trade-off uh, between innovation and safety. We've seen this now, maybe an extreme case with the, the vaccines that uh, they have been waved through at a much quicker pace. But we can also see why, of course, we want to get out of the pandemic. And uh, that is, in, in such a case, that is worth taking even a fairly big risk because the benefits just clearly uh, outweigh that. Um, would you say that our system on the whole has got that balance wrong? Is it that um, we're that it is not safety focused enough or is it that there are just these specific procedures that somehow slipped through the net uh, where normal methods of monitoring didn't work uh, are we talking about the wrong kind of balance in general here um i think one of the things we found that was lacking was actually long-term real life follow-up so yes medicines and will go through clinical trials, devices will go through device trials, but those are relatively small numbers of people involved. When you put something out into the real world, and as you've seen with the vaccine example, that is when you start to pick up these potential adverse events that you didn't see in these small numbers. So that's obviously where the blood clotting risk came in and things like that with the vaccines. That just simply didn't happen with either Valparate or MeSH. Now, hormone pregnancy tests were a while ago, they were before the modern regulatory system, so there wasn't the same regulation. But MeSH is a recent issue. It isn't sort of in the dim and distant past. It is very recent, and there still wasn't that long-term follow-up. So I would say the one thing we would absolutely advocate is that you get this real-life, real-world follow-up and you get patient input into that follow-up because that's absolutely key. It is no good having follow-up that focuses solely on the clinician's voice. The patient's voice has to be heard. Mm -hmm. Would you say that there's any system in the world at present which uh, gets these issues right? Or is it more a matter of 
picking and choosing, saying, okay, they have a redress scheme that works, they have a monitoring system that works, they have something else that works. Is it a pick and choose approach or is there a system where, where you could say, this is bang on right, let's copy that? There are some aspects where we do get it right. And when we looked, um, we looked, for example, at the National Joint Registry, which has every single implantable joint listed in it. So that you can do the follow up. And that has given this sort of detailed breakdown of saying, okay, that hip replacement is actually slightly better for this type of patient than the other version of hip replacement. So there are examples like that. And the Danish registries are really good in that way as well. There are also examples of redress schemes. So I think what we did was when we looked, we sort of we didn't just look at what we've got here. We took a much wider perspective and said, okay, what do we think does work really well? What can we incorporate here? What would work in this our context? And that's why when we came up with our idea of a redress scheme, it borrowed quite heavily from the Swedish system, but also looked at sort of the Japanese system and other systems. Equally, when we made our recommendation for um, a database of all implantable devices, that was quite heavily driven by the notion that when we looked at pelvic mesh and we said, okay, how many patients? The system simply couldn't tell us. It did not have that information to hand. And it should, you should be able to say, okay, this many patients have had this procedure with this device. I don't think that's rocket science. It's quite a fundamental issue. And I think once we start to bring those in, we will start to have a really much safer system going forward. And that was sort of the driving impetus of our report. One of them, caring for people who've been harmed and ensuring that as we go forward, things are safer. So even now, even today, uh, lack of data, lack of follow-up is still an issue. We're not just talking about the 1970s here, but present-day problems. Yeah. yeah. Right, okay. Um, and who would, uh, talking about this redress scheme, uh, who would put money into that? Would that be a tax-funded system, uh, an industry-funded one, a mix? How, how would this work? You can do either of those, both work. I mean, what we envisaged would be probably industry-funded contributions for medicines and devices, certainly, um, because that seems the logical way forward. There are examples where other things happen. I mean, the vaccine compensation schemes, an awful lot of those aren't actually funded by manufacturers, they're funded by um, governments. So there are examples to pick and choose from, but for what we were looking at, we envisaged that it would be industry. Okay. Could there be a conflict here? Um, because I can see you're trying to set up a non-confrontational system uh, where it's not about assigning blame. It's just about saying, okay, this problem has occurred. Let's learn from it, compensate the victims. Um, could it be that uh, from, from an industry perspective that they would think, well, if we contribute to a scheme like that, we would, it would seem like an admission that we've done something wrong. Whereas if, if you have a, a pure litigation scheme and you have to show, you have to prove 
guilt on the on the part of the manufacturer, then it's fairly clear. But it would be a, a strange situation if somebody said, if, if a manufacturer said, um, my product is perfectly safe, I haven't done anything wrong. However, I'll contribute to this scheme um, nonetheless. The, don't you think that they, that would, that would be, there might be a fear on their side that this might seem like uh, an admission of guilt or that, uh, that they, they try to whitewash something or whatever? <laughs> no, I, I completely understand. I think there are two things. One, I think within industry there is an acceptance that with the best will in the world, there will be unforeseen outcomes. And that is you can test products, you can put them out there, but there will be things that go wrong. And I don't think anyone would sort of be overly concerned that therefore their products would be somehow tarnished by admitting that. In terms of looking at it, actually, if you look at litigation, although everyone says litigation focuses on blame, an awful lot of issues are settled with out-of-court out of court settlements that don't involve an admission of liability. So this isn't a new mechanism. This isn't something we've sort of dreamt up. This is something that actually happens quite commonly um, and is just one of those things that does happen because it is a practical way forward. Mm-hmm. It'll be underpinned by a no-fold principle. And Absolutely. That, that applies to the manufacturer, that applies to the, the to clinicians or others involved in in what, whatever's being considered. I think the other point that Sonia's touched on, which is important from the manufacturer's point of view, is that the cost of contesting litigation is substantial. Uh, when you think about it in a global context for a pharmaceutical or device company, having to go to court to defend a case is a time-consuming, expensive process. If you can settle such concerns in a non-confrontational, no-fault context, you can almost certainly do it more quickly. You can almost certainly do it uh, without such great cost, uh, not just financial costs, but all the other costs that are that are associated with going through such adversarial processes. And that's a benefit to not just to the patients, the people who've suffered harm themselves, but actually it could be a benefit to manufacturers as well. And I think we felt that the manufacturers understand that, which is why they participate in redress schemes in other parts of the world. The other thing is you can get information far more quickly because litigation is very, very slow. So from the point that you've got an injury to the point you get to a settlement can be years down the line. And that information doesn't feed into the system. It doesn't feed into the healthcare system. It doesn't necessarily feed in back to the manufacturers for quite a number of years. So if you can get a system that's much more responsive, it will enable this data flow to be much faster. That enables the learning to be much faster. And that actually should improve your harm reduction as well, because if you can identify your issues faster, you can solve them faster. Right. But even if you didn't have to uh, prove guilt on uh, on anyone's part, um, even with a with an out of court redress scheme, you would a certain part of the burden of proof would still be on you. I could not just uh, go to some uh, redress organization and say um, I've had a problem after taking this drug. Give me some money, please. So, so you would have safeguards in place. Um, can can you tell us a bit how how that would work? Absolutely. Um, it there are a lot of different models to choose from. Um, 
Vaccine compensation is obviously one that's in everyone's minds at the moment, and there are a known list of um, complications that occur following vaccination, and then there is a designated time period between the vaccination and the complication arising, and then compensation follows that. So there are mechanisms you can put in place to ensure that, as you say, this is not just a, you know, turn up and hand over funding, that there are, it meets need. And I think that's the point. It has to meet genuine need and there has to be a way to establish that. Now, if you look in the Nordic states, they tend to focus on avoidable injuries. Could the injury have been avoided? And that is a system that we have advocated as a good system because it does have that level of ensuring that the redress you provide is appropriately targeted. Right, so we're not talking about a free-for-all scheme, but there can be safeguarding mechanisms in place. Um, yeah, moving on um, from, uh, from the report itself or the content of the report, let's talk about the, the responses that you have received. Uh, would you say that the echo, the, the reactions to it were broadly positive or, or supportive? Uh, what was it what you expected? What's, what's your experience there? Well, uh, we were very careful and um, very focused on making sure that we put the patients at the heart of what we did and put their concerns first in our minds. And when we published our report, I think we were, we were, we wanted to make sure that it, it resonated with those who had suffered. We wanted to make sure they felt we understood what had happened and that we were coming up with practical and achievable uh, recommendations for implementation. So the response from patients and the patient groups that represent them was, I have to say, universally warm and positive. Um, I think they were, I don't want to put words in their mouth, but I think they were very pleased, if not delighted with, not just what we recommended, but with our recognition and understanding of what they've been through and our um, the empathy I think we tried to show uh, with the, the suffering, the suffering that they they felt. The response from amongst the clinical world I think was similarly positive. We didn't see any people say that we got anything wrong, that we were wide of the mark with our recommendations. They were widely welcomed. Obviously, the one that matters most is the organisation or organisations that can implement the recommendations. We can only recommend. It was for the government and the healthcare system to implement or not the recommendations that we made. The response from the government was uh, to, to accept many of our recommendations, but not all of them. Um, some have been implemented or, in, or are in the process of being implemented now, what, uh, nearly 18 months, two years later. Um, others, they are not currently inclined to implement. And I, I think that there is a continuing debate about whether those recommendations should be implemented. Um, patient groups obviously feel that they should be, we feel that they should be because they will enhance safety, reduce risk and give help to people who really, really need it and deserve it. Um, and the government doesn't quite see it the same way as, as us on, on some of our recommendations. So from them, it's a bit of a mixed reaction, but from almost everyone else, it was university, university positive. 
Okay, well, that's good to hear. Uh, you mentioned that in a lot of cases this follows up years of campaigning, that this isn't some, something new, this, this is uh, something that, that's been there for decades. Um, could one of the, the reasons for that be that, uh, that the NHS simply has this sacrosanct uh, religious uh, status, that uh, people are reluctant to criticize it? Could that be a problem for if you are a patient group and you're, you're saying something has gone badly wrong, and not just in my case, but in um, across the board, across the system, there have been many cases where the system has done uh, something wrong, has been unresponsive, uh, have worked. Do you think that there is that, that, that issue, that uh, there is a, a reluctance to criticize the NHS because it has this uh, sacred cow status and also a culture of defensiveness around it, that you would rather blame the patient group, uh, saying you're malicious troublemakers? Well, absolutely there, there is... Um... There is a tendency in some quarters in healthcare to to deny problems, deny complications have happened, um, a concern about blame and avoid and and you know wanting to avoid blame. So, if you take the case of pelvic mesh, for example, when women went back to their implanting clinician to say that they were experiencing pain and other problems, often they were told that it was in their minds that there was no real problem. Um, that stems in part from a desire not to acknowledge that there is a problem. It's, it's a simple denial uh, response. Um, as to whether the, the, the NHS is such a sacred thing that no one can criticize it, I, we, we published our report at, as COVID was taking a grip and as the healthcare system, the NHS was under possibly the greatest pressure it's ever been under. Uh, in its existence and we were acutely aware that many people in the NHS were working phenomenally hard in very very challenging circumstances so what we said was of course everyone in the system the vast majority of people do a good job and want to do a good job but sometimes things go wrong and it's inevitable in any system particularly one as large and complex as a national healthcare service and we need to acknowledge that and the system itself needs to acknowledge that. It needs to understand what went wrong and it needs to get better in future to prevent similar episodes occurring. But, so we recognize all the good work, uh, but we have to accept that sometimes things go wrong. By the way, it isn't just the NHS itself as an institution. We talked about the healthcare system as a whole. That includes the NHS, but it includes the regulators, it includes the manufacturers, it includes the policymakers. And it includes all the clinicians and their representative bodies, the Royal Colleges and so on. You put all of those people together, that's the healthcare system. It isn't just the hospitals and the NHS. Okay, well, thank you very much. And uh, I'm afraid that's all we got time for. Uh, but Simon, Sonia, thank you for joining me today. And um, well, let's hope some of those lessons will be learned. This is uh, this is an ongoing story. This this uh, is not uh, a finished chapter, and um, I'm sure we will hear more about that. And um, it, it also seems to be a perennial issue, uh, not going to go away uh, completely. Uh, thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the IA podcast on Podbean, Spotify or Apple. We also upload our podcast on our YouTube channel, IA London. If you want to help contribute to the IA's digital output, 
please support us on Patreon, where you can benefit from exclusive membership perks whilst helping us continue to produce stimulating educational output. To become an online patron, click the link in the show notes.